0: How does the Bible connect with the competing worldviews in our culture? And so one of my passions, one of, one of the things that I, I love to study and talk about is how can we as Christians think Christianly about every aspect of our lives? I think we've got a serious problem in our culture. I think we've got a lot of Christians that grew up in the Christian church. They went to youth group. They went to youth camps. They went to sometimes Bible colleges. And all of their friends were in the Christian bubble. And they don't know how to think Christianly in all the areas of life and they definitely don't know how to compete with some of these worldviews that we're talking about today. And so we decided this semester why don't we open it up to anyone who wants to come and uh, why don't we open it up to, to girls and guys. It was a guys only group and I got a lot of flack for that but uh, so we opened it up to everybody and so tonight is not about me lecturing for an hour It's about me introducing a concept, and then you at your tables discuss and wrestle with the ideas, and then we'll discuss it as a group. So if you have questions at any point in time, ask questions, raise your hand, and we'll talk about it. Uh, But this is about developing a biblical worldview, okay? And so last month we talked about what's a Christian worldview. What does it mean to think Christianly about all of life? And so we talked about one of the big things, and this is a lot of the feedback I got afterwards, was how... Um, what the secular culture is trying to do is take values and faith and philosophical questions and put them in the upper story. Do y'all remember that if you were here last time? You know, let's put values and, and faith in the upper story, and then let's put science and business and art and more of the cultural things in the lower story, where where facts live. And so, values are in the upper story; they're not facts. And science and things that we can prove empirically are in the lower story. And those are the things that we build our culture on. And so what does that do for us as Christians? It forces us to make a decision. Are we going to buy into that and take what we believe and what we hold dear and let them move that into the upper story? And then we live our life on the lower story? Just playing the secular game and, and our faith doesn't affect the way we go to work, the way we Um, the way we do business, the way we uh, do relationships, the way we talk about uh, things in the university setting, we just kind of leave that to the private part of our life. So we talked about that last time. Tonight, what I want to do, and I'm excited about tonight, we're trying a few different things, so if it fails miserably, I'll take the blame for that. We're trying some creative ways at your table to test out some of these ideas. So here we go. There's a lot of different competing worldviews in our culture today, but I want to identify and focus on four of those competing worldviews. So here's what I mean. We've got the Christian worldview that's in, informed by the Word of God, which we believe is the authority of God, and how we look at every aspect of our life is through the biblical lens, okay? On the other side are some of these competing worldviews in our culture. So if you look at your notes on your table, we're going to walk through these real quickly, and then I've got an assignment for you to do at your table that we can discuss. Make Make sense? And we'll try to get out of here at uh, 8.30. Is that right? 6.30, 8 o'clock, sorry, 8 o'clock. Uh, probably 8.30 with this table over here. We'll hang around later. Um, okay, first one, moral relativism. Uh, why don't I, I'll just take, what do you guys think that means, moral relativism? Yeah, no absolute truth. So truth is based on what? It's based on your uh, social context, you know, if I grew up in a different part of the world, then I have my own set of truths that the culture has introduced to me, and I live by those truths. But if you grow up in this part of the world, you have a whole different set of truths that you grew up with, and, and also your individual situation in life, what might be true for one situation might not be true for another situation, because it's relative based on the, the particular situation you're in. And so this is not my girly hang this is Kristen's, so a lot better than mine, but, yeah, the idea that there is no absolute standard for ethics. So building an ethical standard for your life, th- there is no standard. But there are ethical, there's an ethical stance as relative to our culture or to our individual situation. And this is kind of the phrase that people, you've probably heard a lot, but what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me. And because we've relegated morality and values into the upper story... I can't tell you you're wrong because that's just a personal preference. You know, my personal preference is to to not have sex before I get married. Hey, that's cool for you. If that works for you, great. But my preference is to not wait till I get married to have sex. And really, we we shouldn't be judging each other for that. Those Those are in the upper story, in the value world. You have your values, I have mine. But there's no facts about it. It's it's not a it's not something that everyone should do. There is no absolute truth according to a relativistic worldview. Now, have y'all run into that in your university settings or in conversations with friends and sororities, fraternities, you know, those late nights where you're standing up talking, have you ever heard of that concept of, hey, that's great, man, if that's true for you, go for it. But but that's not true for me. I want to do my thing. If y'all have y'all heard that? Have y'all seen that? That's moral, moral relativism. So I want to play a game with that. You have note cards on your table. Okay, here we go. You should have pens in the back of your chair if you don't have a pen, so grab a pen. And I want you to write on the side of the note card, going down the side, on the blank side, 1 through 10, on the side, 1 through 10. This won't take long at all. And I'll give you just a second to write down 1 through 10, and then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. Yeah, that's not the exercise to write down 1 through 10. There's more. One dot, two dot, three dot, four dot. Great question, Adam. Thank you. Thank you. That's my personal preference, but if you want to do it differently, you do what you want to do. (coughs) Okay. A few few defining terms before we jump into the exercise. Number one, don't write this down, sorry. Don't write anything down. Just listen to me. Objective. Don't write this down. Listen, and then I'll give you the assignment. Objective. Objective. What does it mean for something to be objective? Like an objective truth. Absolute. It's capable of being either true or false. False. So the law of gravity, it's like either it's true or it's false. That's objective reality. That's an example of that. What is subjective? Yes, subjective is just open to change. It's based on personal preference, okay? So those are the two categories you need to know. Objective, which means it's either true or false. Subjective, which means it's just your personal preference. It's really not a true or false thing. It's personal preference. Here we go. Here are the questions. So by each number, I want you to write either objective or subjective. Okay. Number one, the Cowboys, that's the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) Man, she's good. The Dallas Cowboys are the best team in the NFL. Is that an objective statement or a subjective statement? And do not talk to your neighbor, okay, or I'll boot you out of here. (laughs) Number two The cowboy's helmet has a star on it Objective, that's true or false Or subjective, it's your personal preference Number three We ready? Everybody with me? Salvation is not by works But by faith alone Is that a personal preference Or is that an absolute true or false? Number four, there is only one way to God. And obviously, be honest, no, y'all aren't writing your names on them. Number five, my shirt is gray. Don't get literal, ladies. I know there's probably some weird name for this, but... Okay, number six, gray is the coolest color. That's number six. Number seven, sex before marriage is a sin. Number eight, if you follow Hindo excuse me, Hindo Hindu teaching, uh, that is a false worldview. Is that subjective or objective? Like is that just my personal opinion, or is that true or false? Number nine: marriage is between one man and one woman. And number 10, you should always vote Republican. Okay, so once you finish that, fold it up and just leave it on your table. I want to look at the results to see where we're at with that. So leave that on your table, please, so I can collect those at the end. Okay, so this is the idea of moral relativism. It's, It's the idea that the things that have to do with morality and values is based on your personal preference and the culture that you've grown up in. Okay, number two. And these are big words, but they're really not that complicated. Autonomous individualism. Um, One of you guys, go ahead and read that. You'll have the notes. Somebody read that out loud, the definition. Yeah, somebody read it out to everybody. everybody. The idea that each person is independent in terms of destiny and accountability. Yeah, the idea that each person is independent in terms of destiny and accountability. Like what I want to do with the rest of my life, and who holds me accountable is all up to me. Okay, it's, it's anti-authority, it's anti-submission, It's this is my life and I'm going to do what I want to do. Um, it's, it's the belief that individuals should have the freedom to decide what is right for their own life. And I'll say that again. It's the idea that, that individuals should have the freedom to decide what is right for my life. And live in whatever manner brings me the most happiness. That's the idea behind autonomous individualism. You're, you're autonomous. You're your own entity, and it's an individual bent to the way you live your life. It's it's a pursuit of the things that are important to you, and not kind of submitting to the community around you, whether it's church or work or um, school, things like that. Makes sense. Okay, the third one, uh, this is uh, another big word, but narcissistic hedonism. Everybody knows what narcissism means, right? Just an inordinate focus on yourself, like life revolves around you. You're the center of the world. And, And hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. So this idea is the pursuit of personal pleasure and avoidance of pain is the ultimate goal in life. Think about that. Think about how you've heard that and how that shaped even your life or your family's life. Or it's the idea when you hear someone say, and and Ben and I and and others who are in in the pastoral ministry who counsel people and deal with marriages, you hear a lot of times people that are at the verge of divorce say that we just fell out of love and they're not treating me like I need to be treated And I I don't need this anymore, and what I need to do is get out of this painful situation, because pain is bad, and divorce is the best option to do that, so that I can live a life of personal fulfillment and personal pleasure. That's one example of this is the grid through which a lot of people make decisions. Like, this thing causes me pain, so it must be bad. I'm going to go throughout my life trying to find the things that make me the most happy and the most pleasurable. And I'll be honest with you. In a lot of ways, this is one of the biggest, influ- you know, this is one of the biggest temptations in my life is, you know, just to pursue things that make me feel good. You know, and I, I you, you get into habits, you get into addictions, you get into, um, you know, not fulfilling your other responsibilities in life if it's all about you and all about fulfilling your needs. Okay, number four, reductive naturalism. Somebody read that out loud. The definition for that. that Yeah, and the buzzword is just prove it. Hey, oh, you believe in God? Okay, prove it. How do they want you to prove it? According to scientific empirical verification. The things that you can touch, see, smell, feel. The material world is all that matters in this worldview. Because there is nothing outside of the material world. Science is the god of reductive naturalism. So reductive, meaning they reduce everything down to what we can see, touch, feel, and and smell. Does that make sense? I think of guys, you know, the four horsemen of atheism. You have Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who passed away recently. And the third one, I think, is Daniel Dennett. Uh, These are the four horsemen. And, you know, they say that because they've had such a major influence on culture today. Their books sell millions. I mean... New York Times bestseller books about this idea of this is reality. Only the things that we can see. You know, evolutionary theory and we're just, you know, we're just stardust that was made out of primordial soup. It's, it's because that's, it's a natural worldview. There is no soul. There is no sense of, of morality outside of what you can verify empirically. So morality would mean after looking at the evidence, this would be good for culture and, and This would be bad based on empirical evidence, not any kind of philosophical or religious uh, view of morality. Okay, so these are the four. Of course, there's more. I mean, Islam would be a worldview that competes with Christianity. And uh, there's other worldviews that compete with Christianity. But these are the four that I really wanted to focus on tonight because I feel like they're so prevalent, at least in our culture. And for a lot of you who went to university, either TCU or wherever you went, you were introduced to some of these types of uh, philosophies, whether it was a history of religion class or philosophy class or just conversations on campus. Okay, any questions at this point before we jump into our little uh, discussion at the table? Okay, well, after we do this this activity, we're going to get together as a group and discuss, so you need to have questions after this. So here's what we're going to do, and this is where I, you know, this is, I've never done this before, so we'll see what happens, but here's what we're going to do. I've got an article for each table. They're not that long. Um, I want someone at the table to read the article out loud. If you need to grab some chairs and go to the corner, you know, to get a little more privacy, or if you want to go out in the atrium, that's fine, but one person at your table is going to read the article, and what I want all of you to do, because this is the point of us talking about this, and I've got two other things I want to say, because Based on that point. But the point is. You want to see the lens through which the author is writing this article. Are they influenced by moral relativism. Narcissistic hedonism. Reductive naturalism. Autonomous individualism. Or a combination of, of them. Okay. So as the person is reading the article. Jot down notes. You know, Think about. Okay. This sounds like someone who is, is believing that this is the answer to all of life or believing that this is the pursuit of all of life. Okay, does that make sense, that part? Yes? yes. Okay, good. Okay, so real quick, two reasons why we're doing this. Some people, I, I've been criticized for my roundtable group because we sit around and we read books like Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. We re re-read a book recently, Ten Books That Screwed Up the World and Five That Didn't Help, which was a great book. Um, we, we read all kinds of different books. We read The Reason for God, Tim Keller, But we don't read a lot of the Bible when we meet. And a lot of people say, why are you wasting your time reading these books written by terrible people who have terrible ideas? Um, Couldn't you be doing better things with your time and with, with your people that you're kind of mentoring and spending time with? What would your answer be to that? You can raise your hand if you have a thought on that. I've got two answers I want to give you. but Brian? Well said, Patrick. Yeah, so exactly. So number one, you need to realize which of these worldviews is actually shaping the way you live your life. How are you making decisions about who you date and who you marry, how you date how you go through the marriage process? How you how you re, um, interact with your coworkers? How you how you decide to take this job or that job or move into this house or this? It's very practical, and you don't realize it, but that since we were kids, unless you grew up in a really Christian home with uh, parents that that just you know hit it out of the park with raising you up to. To know the scriptures and, and to, to live according to the word of God. Most of us have grown up being taught some of these things in some way. And what's the most prevalent way that we're taught these things? There, there's reward and punishment. Yeah, like if you say that there is one absolute truth, you're going to get punished for that by being ridiculed or ostracized. That's one way. Somebody said university, obviously college, you're getting bombarded with this. But what about, what about the, the culture at large? Music, movies, um, you know, conversations with friends, just, just cultural, the arts, art, plays, dramas, all of that. Every, listen, everyone... Who does any produces any kind of creative art of any kind, whether it's movies, books, um, podcasts, uh, news articles, um, artwork, plays? They have a worldview that is shaping how they make their their thing, how they create their their art. No one is neutral. And so what I want you to realize as we work work through this and as you think about this as we leave, which one of these are really influencing your life and you haven't known it until tonight? Which one of these is like, man, yeah, I found myself saying this a lot of times. Like, hey, man, if that works for you, that's cool, man. But for me, I, I do the Christian thing. But if you want to do something else, hey, that's cool, too. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're, you're a science geek and you love science and you were in all the biology classes and you graduated with a biology degree. You were bombarded with this idea and you didn't even know it, but you've kind of adopted some of these secular, naturalistic worldviews that are completely contrary to the Bible. I've, I've told this story before, but one of my wife's friends was a biology major, grew up in the Catholic Church... And I asked her one day what she thought about evolution, and she said, well, in in the classroom, I believe in evolution, but at church, I believe in Adam and Eve and historical. So which one of those is she under? Probably a little bit of this, you know, and it, it, it bridges some of these. But essentially, it's like, hey, it's true for me in this situation, but in this situation, I have a different truth. So, yeah, I want you to know how you're affected by these. And then secondly, like Brian and Patrick said, The goal of this is so that we can go out and and share the gospel and be on mission. And there are barriers to the gospel, guys. There are barriers, and they're intellectual barriers. They're barriers of ideas. Ideas are strong barriers, very strong barriers. And so what we do, it's kind of a pre-evangelism when you're talking about this stuff. You help people see the worldviews that they're believing in and that they're putting their hope in. And you help them see kind of the weaknesses of those worldviews so that they will then be more receptive to the gospel message. But if you just jump in with the gospel message and use Christian language and, you know, Jesus died as a propitiation for your sins and he's a substitute and they don't even have categories for that sometimes. And so you've really got to figure out and be a good investigator of what are the worldviews that are shaping how they live their life. So it will make you better evangelists. So those are two big things of why we do this among many more. So here we go. I'm going to pass these out randomly. Some of them are a little longer than others. So if you feel like, hey, we've gotten through enough to, to make some good points, you can stop there. But um, And I'll go over the instructions one more time after I pass these all out. All right, let's bring it back in. Okay, so here's how we're going to attempt to... To, uh, to do this, and uh, it's going to rely on you guys having feedback and, and kind of uh, voicing your thoughts, you know, get the extroverts at your tables that want to do that. Kristen is going to be bringing the mic around so that we can get this on audio because we post this online for those who can't be here, and so here's what I want to do. I want you to very briefly at your table uh, tell us what the, the big idea of the, the, the piece was and it would help to know where it's from. Like, the, this is this is one from the Guardian. Um, so tell us where the piece is from, and then what it's what it's about, and maybe two or three sentences, and then let's let's talk about it. I'll ask you some questions. So we'll start with the All Star table.
1: This table first. Who's got it?
2: All right, we, we did a hey, interview. What's, you, what's Rick- your name, sir? Oh, I'm Lonnie. Hey, how's it going, everybody? <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. We did a uh, interview with Richard Dawkins and it's titled The Flying Spaghetti Monster by Steve Paulson. The Flying Spaghetti Monster summarizes a major false comparison argument made by atheists oftentimes to try to make Christians and believing in God look stupid as as an argument for themselves. Uh, what else were we supposed to talk about? So the the point of it was a, it was an interview of Richard
0: Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, who so, is um, a
2: very... Fervent atheist.
0: Yeah. So Richard Dawkins has published numerous books. He's a uh, he was a professor at Oxford. Um, very educated man. Some I think in Time magazine like the smartest man in the world. But when he gets into philosophy, he gets off track. But yes. okay. So as y'all you know, were looking at the worldviews, what worldview was he kind of? displaying in that in that interview
2: the absolute center of his argument is reductive naturalism even though he's wrong on that in that field
0: (laughs) okay so thank you for that Lonnie Um, okay so so Richard Dawkins very prominent atheist all that can be known is the material natural world around us through empirical verification so that's his overarching lens through which he sees everything is that correct Pretty much, yeah. Okay, from the article. Okay, so were there any big things that y'all talked about that kind of discoveries or
2: nuances from that that you want to share? I threw out all his logical fallacies, and uh, some other people had some (laughs) cool ideas, too.
1: (laughs) Okay, now I'm on the spot. Um, We went along with – we just kind of approached it. How would you talk to someone like this? Um, We kind of came up with two main ideas – The first being, uh, more from the aspect, if you approach someone like this, Stephen Dawking, Stephen Hawking, any of them, they're far more intelligent than most of us are. They've done the research, as one of our guys put, when you put science and create science as your God, then of course you're going to spend all your effort pursuing that and studying that. So for most of us, we haven't spent that much effort. So the main uh, issue would just to come at them with uh, genuineness and really caring about, okay, you believe this, let's talk about this, let's learn about this and not purely attack their worldview. No one was ever um, converted by having their worldview utterly destroyed. I mean, that puts everyone on the defensive. Um, And then the other issue is in this article, he raised evil, you know, and how can you empirically prove that something is evil or good, right or wrong? And so that will lead to another avenue just to uh, examine, okay, what are you basing this on? Okay, if we take this out of right and wrong, how do you uh, – they brought up art as an example. You can't empirically say this art is good, this art is bad because it's all subjective. So you can kind of point into other areas that, yes, there are, there are things that can be considered right that you cannot empirically prove because it's, right. it's in a different venue.
0: So w- wasn't there a spot in there where you talked about the why question? Did you all get to that part?
1: It was really long. It was long. <laughs> Some of
0: these were too long. I apologize for that. But once again, we're just trying something out. Okay. So one of the questions was um, for Richard Dawkins: Why did why was the Earth created? Why was the universe created? And he said that's a stupid question. <laughs> he said asking the why question is pointless and meaningless. The only question we should be concerned with is how. And he said, when it comes to why, you might ask, why do birds have wings to help them fly? That would be a why question. But why did, did he, was there, why does earth have humans, and do we have a purpose, and why are we here? He said that's pointless. Going back to the upper story, lower story, and if you weren't here last month, you're going to be a little confused on that, but if the upper story is kind of why questions, like, you know, what's the meaning of life, what's the purpose of life, what is God's purpose for our lives? What, what is morality, good and evil, and right and wrong? If that's in the upper story, and science, facts is in the lower story. Does it make sense why he would kind of say, that's not even a question that we should be asking? Does, does that kind of make sense? So I think it's interesting that a lot of atheists, they don't even want to talk about why. They just want to focus on how. Because of their worldview. Because of their worldview. Any other thoughts from your table that you want to share that jumped out at you?
3: Yeah, he also brought up uh, essentially that things have been done in the name of faith that have just been atrocious, like the Crusades, uh, 9 11, you know, basically things done in the name of faith that have just like, that basically destroys why we should even believe in some sort of higher being. I would argue that atheism is actually the number one cause of unnatural death. You have Hitler, Mao Zedong. Uh, and various other dictators that have done, pushed out God or tried to eradicate it completely, and hundreds of millions of people have died because of that thought process. So, yeah, that's a good point. I'd be interested to see what he has to say about that. And then also, yeah, like where does evil come from? How do you, you know, basically get to the point that evil is actually even a thing? And from a biblical worldview, I would say that atheism is actually not even real to say. It's uh, idolatry, fundamentally, uh, from a biblical worldview, because you're basically, in his perspective, that you're putting reason, science, as your hope and faith, that you're putting faith in. And uh, Yeah,
0: that's a good point. When it comes to this worldview, reason is the ultimate authority like what we can figure out with our human minds is what is uh, is how we discover truth and and reason is god and and um science is god because it's used with reason so yeah that that's that's a good point let's uh let's keep moving on any other thoughts over here okay let's move on to this table <laughs> It's, it's actually a cliche. Go ahead. Was that Adam? Yeah. He Go claimed
3: ahead. he was equally atheistic about the Flying Spaghetti Monster as he was about God
4: or about Thor or or unicorns. Odin or unicorns. Yeah. He, was, he was atheistic about all
3: those things.
0: But that's become kind of a, a cool thing in those circles. I think there's a website, Um oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's become kind of their, uh, their rebuttal. Um, there's sarcasm to kind of shut down conversation. But, okay, you guys right, back here, here. Who's the representative? How about the lawyer? Yeah, let's have the lawyer <laughs> speak. Oh, sure. What's your name? It's not
5: like it's my job to speak on others' behalf for a living. Oh, wait. Hey, hey, this
0: is going online. Just oh. a warning, Adam. <laughs> this is going online.
5: Right, right, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right, well. <coughs> All right, then then I, I won't tell you what, uh, what horrible things Kristen said. Um, <laughs> I have no idea why I threw Christine under the bus. I'm sorry. Okay, so basically this was an article about a transgender student at a Chicago school who wanted to, uh, well, it says the student was born male but identifies as female and wants to use the girls' restrooms and locker rooms. And um, Title IX, a a provision in a federal law, provides that no person in the U.S. shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation and be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Obviously, any school receiving federal funds uh, is constrained by this law, and the superintendent came up with basically a compromise to try and respect the rights of the 12,500 other students that uh, he was responsible for to provide to uh, provide her a separate room uh, to change in, a separate locker room and uh, restroom. And he's trying to balance the rights of the other students with this student's needs. The uh, ACLU filed a complaint with the Department of Education and... Uh, Basically, this thing has been tied up in litigation, and uh, the author basically takes position that it takes courage to come out as transgender, and that the Obama administration has been more supportive of the rights of transgender people than any previous administration, but more still needs to be done to end the discrimination and harassment of America's transgender population. Um, So...
0: Well, well summarized, my friend. That was good. Um, so, what was the discussion at your table? Was it was it hard to kind of identify the underlying currents of that article? Or? No, I
5: think we were pretty much all on the same page that it, moral relativism uh, was the, the order of the day uh, with this article, and uh, some of us noticed undertones of kind of uh, autonomous individualism—the idea that you know. You should have the right to decide what's right for your life. Yeah, and certainly uh, the author subscribes to that. But then, at, at the very end, when uh, oh, and by the way, this was a column from the Economist. Um, a, uh, I guess you, you'd call this an op-ed piece uh, from some blog on the Economist website. And um, the, the the very end, the the author. T- talking about how it takes courage and more needs to be done to end the discrimination and harassment of the transgender population, definitely that obviously sounded a lot more like moral relativism than autonomous individualism yeah but yeah
0: and, and then the, and then I think there was a part in there about just the the individual freedom to pursue happiness or something like that. There was like one sentence in there, I thought, but uh, but yeah, I think you 'll summarized it well and any other thoughts at your table in regards to that article that any of you else want to share? Anyone else?
6: I just, I personally was having a hard time understanding the difference and the exclusivity of moral relativism and the autonomous individualism.
0: Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely overlap in these categories, and that's one of the negatives of doing this, kind of making this so linear and, and logical, like you know, you're either in this category or this category, there's a lot of ov- overlap, even in our, in our own lives. I mean, there's a tendency in my life to to pursue pleasure over what's right at times, and that that's sinful, and, and yet I hold to a biblical worldview, and, and I, I try to, uh, you know, push away from this. So a lot of these, there is overlap, but this is just kind of a way to look at the different categories to... Be a little more on the lookout for them when they pop up. So, so yeah, there, there's definitely overlap for sure. Um, okay, let's go to this table. You guys had a really interesting article. Um, Thank you.
7: <coughs> okay, so our article. What, what's your name, sir? I'm, my name's Lewis, for anyone who doesn't know me. Hello, Lewis. Um, my name is Lewis, and I have a problem. Okay, okay. I'm just kidding, i never done that. Um, all right, so ours comes from Washington Post, so red flag number one. Um, but uh, the <laughs> title show is why, why Is It Hard to Die the Way We Want? And essentially the Okay, so that is,
0: title alone, Why Is It Hard to Die the Way We Want, you know, is a good, like, okay, I think I might know where they're coming from, but keep going.
7: So it, basically the, the author is talking about it being a problem that uh, assisted... You know, medically assisted suicide is not um, commonplace in the country, and there's only a few places you can do it. Um, the argument is if someone has such a diminished quality of life, they shouldn't be uh, forced to continue that, and also to put a burden on society and their family in terms of debt and, you know, struggle and that kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, would there's t- an example. Time out
0: on that real quick. Dude. That's time out on that real quick. The the idea that it would be right to end someone's life because of the burden it would put on someone's family financially, um, that's another worldview that we haven't talked about. But that would go like right here. It's called pragmatism. Do y'all know what that means? Pragmatism. It's essentially, um, you know, what works and what's what's efficient. What what helps is what's true. And what doesn't work is, is, is not true for us. And so the idea that, that a pers- an older elderly person in your family, like think of your great-grandparents or, or grandparents, the thought of them being having assisted suicide because of economic reasons is a very pragmatic approach to a very important decision. So pragmatism is, is prevalent in our society too, but keep going.
7: Yeah, um, and then there's an example that... Uh the author gives in here about a 29-year-old that has terminal brain cancer and decides to move to um, Oregon because they have a law that permits um, like medically-assisted suicide or whatever, doctor-assisted or whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the general principle. Um, and then it talks about things in the way of that, like regulations, traditions, um, social and religious ideas that, are impeding this kind of progress. So um, moving on to which of the, I guess, the philosophies that were in there, we kind of saw a little bit of all of them. Um, we didn't really determine which one was the most. If I, if I had to say, it would probably be the the hedonism one. Um, yeah, the idea
0: of pain is, you know, you want to avoid pain at all costs. And if someone is experiencing pain, then the... the uh, the humane thing to do, the merciful thing to do is to end that pain, which yeah. is to put them out of their, their misery.
7: So, and with that one, yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the focus is the patient and what they're feeling and all that. So it's essentially hedonistic for them to say, well, this is too painful for me. I'm going to end it. But then we also have all the other ones. Moral relativism is saying, well, death or, you know, causing death is not bad in this situation. So human life is not you know, objectively valuable in that sense. That's a good point. Then you have um, individualism, which is, you know, you're not accountable to anyone else. It's just your decision. You know, you you be you. And if that means I want to just kill myself with someone else's help, then great, you do your thing. Uh, and then a little bit even of the reductive naturalism will just kind of hints of it because the tone in here, anytime the religious... Beliefs or whatever brought up is very negative and very like this is just some nebulous idea. It's a silly idea. old tradition that tradition, we need to move on from. Yeah, that just prevents this, you know, progress sort of thing. So kind of like you know the whole upper story thing. Like yeah. just if we could just get rid of that, which is obviously not real, it's just there. Yeah. Then we could move on with it. Um.
0: That's good. That's real good. I wanna I wanna keep going with this table because they had a very interesting dilemma. I think maybe some of you guys have. Read this, this recently. One? This happened. Yeah, this one. This happened. I think last week. It was an article in all over the news. So why don't you tell us what that one's about?
3: All right. This is an article from Parent Herald, and it was about a five-year-old with a terminal medical disease. I don't know if it was terminal or not. Terminal. And her parents had given her the choice about whether she would end her own life or not. And she had chosen. Not, not life. Sorry. To live or not. Is that-
6: yeah, to continue- the, the
0: question it is a little being complicated. asked, but y'all listen you... to this. This one's this one's very interesting.
6: The question they asked the five-year-old to help choose between was heaven or hell. Hell being going back to the hospital, and and that's the choice the article put. But to go back to the hospital to continue with treatments versus letting the disease progress. Yeah. And so we're, we brought up the one about the brain tumor and. But where it kept leading us into discussion and where I think the article took you through this was this idea of, well, is this okay, is it not? And we kept saying, well, they don't give you many answers in there, and that's why I think Marshall's saying, like, they were you know, they gave her the choice to end her life. No, that I don't think that's what they were saying. But it was very vague, and so we're sitting there like, well, if we put it in this circumstance, maybe this. And if we put it in this situation, maybe that. And so we got into the idea that maybe there was a lot of moral relativism going on through the yeah. theme there, in addition to the ideas continuing on with what they were saying in their talk. Yeah,
0: and the idea of individualism. So, I mean, I've got a four-year-old girl, so this one kind of hit home to me. Like, the idea of... Uh, you know her suffering with cancer and 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 me putting the ball in her court which i think is very much like she's her own person she you know she's independent in terms of her destiny and accountability the parents have said we're not going to choose that for her because you know i think they've bought into this idea that it's her choice even at the age of 5 years old and i think of my daughter at at 4 years old not being able to understand the ramifications of that. And then I also think there's an emphasis on once again this idea of we don't want our daughter to suffer and I get that. And so we're gonna make major decisions based on that concept that that I I, I would rather everyone feel better and this is the best way for everyone to feel better, including her, instead of all of us suffering through these these uh, hospital visits and the, the whatever procedures they're doing that are painful. Um, are y'all are y'all tracking with how complicated this is, and do you realize that that most Christians, um, that's that's kind of a general broad statement, but a lot of people who profess to be Christians read these articles and just move on to the next thing. They just read them and are like, oh, that's interesting, or oh, yeah, that makes sense, and they don't stop and think about, okay, how would I look at this biblically, biblically. Are we independent in terms of destiny and accountability? Biblically, is pain always a negative? Is suffering always a negative in the New Testament? Absolutely not. And so I think what happens is is we don't even realize it through the movies we watch, the music we listen to, the books we read, the articles we read, the the classes we've been in. But we've adopted some of these mentalities to where a lot of Christians could read one of these articles and be like, nah, no big deal you know, I have my faith, you're not affecting my faith, this is this is other stuff. And I think because of that, over these next few decades, when it's very important that we engage our culture, we're going to continue to be more and more irrelevant. Because we can't speak intelligently about the things that are going on in our culture. Because it's going way beyond our capacity to do that. Because we're not thinking about it. We don't spend time thinking about it. We just read the information, embrace it, and move on instead of using the Bible as a lens through which to interpret these things. But that one was good. I'm going to go back to you guys if we have time. They read two articles because they had a short one. But let's go back here to this table. How would you know Robert was going to be the one? You just went right to him. What's your name, sir?
4: I'm Robert. Okay, hey, Robert. We also had an article on euthanasia, so it will be a lot of review on the previous table. But this was written in 1950. Um, titled "To Kill or Not to Kill," two experts debate the morality of euthanasia, um, and this author argues that it's a humane necessity that we would end the suffering of someone who's terminal or um, who's who's draining financial resources. And and they made the argument that um, a doctor should want to alleviate pain, and so that should they should then have the option to do so by euthanizing someone. And so. Um, you could see from a pragmatic standpoint, like, why wouldn't you do this? If somebody's terminal, why wouldn't you just end their suffering? Um, You could save them money, you put them out of their misery, end the burden on their family. Um, Even from a a Christian standpoint, though it's completely objective that, um, from our worldview, this shouldn't be okay, um, I I found myself asking, why wouldn't I just want to see Jesus? Why do I want to stay Alive, if I know I'm probably not going to see outside of the walls of this hospital room ever again, um, apart from the fact that I know that's what Jesus would have for me, um, to suffer and to suffer well um, and to reveal his glory through my suffering. So um, it's a really tough issue because you can see why people would gravitate towards it and people would be okay with just putting someone out of their misery. Um, The most obvious one was the narcissistic hedonism. Um, Pain was obvious, the the um, antithesis of what you're striving for in in this article. You don't, pain is is the enemy. And so if you can end pain, you do it. Um, You could see a lot of the autonomous individualism as far as like someone should have the choice to end their life. You could see the way he talked about um, religion as this sentimental belief that he was probably a reductive naturalist. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, it was kind of belittling the way he went about it. And so... Um, and then, of course, the moral relativism, like this is if if it's okay in this scenario it's not okay in this scenario it's okay if we have this structure in place to to allow it it's not okay if we don't have yeah, is that the one where you mentioned Hitler
0: yeah, yeah, so in that situation, he was arguing, oh, this is unacceptable because mm-hmm. of the circumstances surrounding it, but in different circumstances, it would be acceptable
4: to yeah. you know to end someone 's life who's in suffering so and then obviously a ton of pragmatism because it does seem like the most useful thing would would be to just kill someone let let the family save the money and put them in the ground
0: yeah so real quick guys when it comes to the christian worldview what is our view of 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 man when it comes to the end of life do y'all have any thoughts on that? that when it comes to death and the end of life yeah it's not for us to take that into our own hands i think it's a big view like uh, until the Lord calls us home, we can glorify Him, even in the midst of extreme pain. And you can go back in church history and you can look at... I, I love reading accounts of the martyrs who uh, died horrible deaths, you know, burned at the stake in, in the uh, uh, Reformation period uh, in different parts of Europe, and, and just their ability to glorify God in the midst of that kind of just unbearable suffering. Um, Yeah, and what's amazing is what I've seen as I've read is that you don't, if you think about being in that situation now, you'd be like, I would never be able to handle that. Like if I was ever in another country and I got arrested and put in prison, I would not be one of those people that could handle that. That's what we think. But what God does is in the moment when we need grace, He gives it to us. And in the moment when we need strength, He gives it to us. He doesn't give it to us a moment before. And so it's amazing to see people glorify and praise the Lord in the midst of those situations. I think of uh, Paul and Silas in prison when they got beat up and flogged and whipped. And then the next verse said they were singing psalms and hymns in the jail cell. And it's like those are people who are, who are not operating under this this idea that the world revolves around them. For, for Paul and Silas, the world, the world revolves around the Lord. And they're going to they're gonna praise Him in the good times and praise Him in the bad. And... Uh, so, yeah, but, but great thoughts, good summary. Um, let's go to this table.
8: Who wants that? Uh, so our, ish, uh, our topic was uh, seeing only black and white, misses Shades in Between, and the main topic was abortion. Um, and that's always been a really big issue uh, here. And basically, um, the big idea is... Um, the author kept mentioning what's called the platinum rule, very similar to the golden rule, is a do unto others as if um, as though you might be them. Um, so it really kind of like putting yourself in their shoes. Yeah. Um, and basically, uh, it definitely deals with moral relativism of like what's good for you um, is uh, is good for you. Um, so there's obviously not just black and white on this issue. Um and then also um narcissistic hedonism because it kind of like you have to do like what is best for you and like um just personal pleasure. Uh so and kind of what um Ryan brought up and is, and like the platinum rule is uh, pretty narcissistic because then you kind of um if you put yourself in their like as in their shoes, you're doing what's best for like yourself. But, um, and says, uh, I mean, God says count others as more significant as yourself. So, yeah. um, but yeah, this is from the Chicago Tribune. Um, but like one big question, uh, Hillary had is do people see this as more of a religious issue or a legal issue? Um, and that's why. That particular yeah, that the abortion part- as a whole or yeah. that particular situation? Because, I mean, it, it's, um, yeah, as, abortion as a whole subject. Yeah, so. of
0: course, Hillary has a very good question. Um, Hillary always has good questions. Um, yeah, I, I think, I would say both and. I, th- I think religion definitely plays a part in it because um, we all have presuppositions that we believe. We, Whether you're religious or atheist or whatever that you're bringing to the table. and uh, And so religion is going to play a part in what you believe about humanity and what you believe about if there's a creator and in what you believe about hum- human life and when conception happens, um, as Christians, we we kind of take our cues from that, from the Bible, and so that's going to shape it's going to shape our politics in that way. Um, but it is a very political issue when it comes to legislation and the freedom for people to to choose. I think there was one statement in that article I can't remember about uh, like there's a different set of values. F- like you have to take into account not only the baby but the mom and if you put yourself in the mom's shoe you may want to abort the baby you know and there wasn't this talk about putting yourself in the baby's shoes as much as it was the mom was that the same article or did I get that yeah, from somewhere else
8: it's like right at the bottom it's um it's like let's if you're putting yourself in the mom's shoes and then let's assume that the next morning you wake up and you're the child what would you want to happen
0: yeah and the response of the guy writing the article was essentially there's different weights and balances that you put on which perspective you're in, if that makes sense. And so if you're in the mother's perspective, it might carry more weight than if you're in the child's perspective. Something like that, but it was very nuanced and, and it's definitely this idea of, once again, we keep going back to that truth is dependent on the particular situation. Um, okay, let's finish it up over here. They had a super long article so they didn't get through everything. It was actually a... Uh, it was kind of a debate between Rick Warren and Sam Harris, which I thought, wow, how'd that happen? Um, how did those two guys get together? It was in Rick Warren's office at the church in Saddleback. So tell, tell us what you all got through a little bit of that. What are your thoughts on that? What, excuse me, as just far as what the, a summary, the topic...
9: A summary of the article and what...
0: Yeah, just topic. tell us what the article... Yeah, the big picture of what you talked about.
9: Okay, so it's the God
10: debate. It's from Newsweek. It's Rick Warren and Sam Harris, who's a, a PhD student in neuroscience, basically debating like all of the nuances of if there even is a God versus if there's not. And it comes from... Um, Sam Harris is a reductive naturalism person. He believes that if there's no way to prove something, then it obviously can't exist... And so he, like, talks about, you know, they ask Rick Warren, like, what evidence do you have that God exists? And he's like, I see his fingerprints everywhere. And then um, the other guy is like, well, we don't fully understand the universe, but neither the Bible nor the Quran represents our best understanding of the universe. So they kind of just go back and forth debating that. And then they talk about um, whether man has a soul and whether, um, you know, if, can you be spiritual and not believe you have a spirit? Because the one guy thinks that he can feel one with the universe, and Rick Warren's like, "Well, that's being spiritual." And he's like, "But I don't have a spirit." So it's just yeah. So here's about the big that.
0: thing with that because I've read quite a bit of Sam Harris. He he practices meditation, transcendental meditation, and he has this spirituality, but he he roots it in purely in biological terms, like the the, the practice of Meditation does something to your brain neurologically. You know, it works with the chemicals and it creates an illusion of a spiritual experience, but it's not reality. So he completely discounts the spirit. He actually discounts free will as as well, because we're products of our, um, you know, we're products of our mind and we're products of just the impulses that we have and the chemicals that are that it's very predictable from that perspective. So he is he is absolutely without a doubt unashamedly looking at the world through a naturalistic perspective and um, so it's interesting there was a really popular um, YouTube clip of Sam Harris on the Bill Maurer show on HBO have y'all heard of Bill Maurer Um, but he was debating Ben Affleck and um, Ben was was Ben 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 was, was really mad at Sam Harris because he had critical things to say about uh, Islam. And so Sam Harris actually had some good good points about Islam. But they got in this heated discussion. I mean, yelling at each other. So you ought to look that up online. But Sam Harris is a guy who's probably in his... He's probably my age, maybe a little older. And has, once again has written books that are selling you know, hundreds of thousands of copies and has, a, has an influence in this world. So we have to be able... If we were ever to run into a guy who was, or a girl who was shaped and influenced by Sam Harris's teachings, we need to have an idea of the, the kind of the underlying worldview of, of that teaching. So uh, good thoughts over here. Okay, overall on the, the whole evening, any questions in terms of how these operate? I know this is a little bit um, it isn't as neat and clean and tidy as this. But I think this was the best way to get you guys to start thinking in terms of when you go out into the world tomorrow and you look at your phone at your news app and you're listening to music and you're hanging out with friends. As Christians, we need to be thinking through all of our life through the biblical lens. We need to think Christianly, not just on Sundays and Wednesday nights and in a small group, but every second of every day should be about seeing reality through the lens of the Bible. Or else we're not even going to know it, but subtly we're going to start um, adopting some of these worldviews that are completely contrary to the biblical worldview. Which you know what that ha- you know what that does is it makes us inconsistent, and it also makes us live a life that is a kind of contradictory, and it hurts our witness to the watching world. Um, so, do you have any thoughts or anything, Kristen, on this? I don't need two microphones. <laughs>
9: I just I think one thing that I think could be like a cool challenge um, is keeping these things in mind. And as we hear about worldviews, like we are all consumers of media in some way. You listen to music in your car, you listen to podcasts, you watch TV, read the news, whatever it is. And Tyler's kind of alluded to this, but use all of that as opportunities to engage your mind and not just turn off and totally. zone out in front of the TV. But practice this, like when you're watching whatever you watch on TV. Interact with what the characters are saying and see what their mind, their worldviews are, where they're coming from, and try to think about how, if somebody said that to you, how would you react? Or how would you share the gospel with a person with that worldview? Just, we don't, our minds are for worshiping the Lord and loving Him, and He wants us to use them and not just turn them off, so I think... That's a great
0: point. Yeah. Yeah, pr- practice doing this on a daily basis because you won't develop this kind of... Uh, you know, intentionality in living unless you practice doing that. That's a good point. Any other thoughts or or questions about
2: this? I know we didn't uh, talk much about some of the other worldviews that are uh, false as well, but uh, when it comes to these (laughs) four worldviews, there's a very interesting link behind them. I usually call them all rooted in relativism, and basically the soil and the root is the soul or the root is basically that man decides truth, as opposed to God deciding truth, and that's really the root difference, is the way I see it.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It's are uh, definitely kind of man-centered ways of looking at the world. Um, did somebody else have their hand raised? Yeah, right behind you, Adam.
3: I think also almost all of these fall under moral relativistic terms. I mean, like you said, they're they yeah all are defined by something. And that something can change, so it's not yeah. a true or a false statement. It's not objective. It's they're all subjective, based on facts, new statistics, or how I feel about something, or whatever. Sure. Yeah,
0: that that is a good point. And you know, maybe the one exception to that at times is is the uh, the naturalist worldview. You know, they tend to put science in the realm of objective fact that is non-negotiable. Doesn't matter what culture you're in. Uh, science should be adopted, technology should be adopted um, because it 's just true, so i, I think that 's where that upper story lower story is uh, comes into play with that
3: yet one day coffee 's good for you, and the next day it 's bad for you based on science
0: <laughs> that 's true no it, it that I, one of the articles I was thinking about giving out, but I decided not to was was a very helpful article on how science is uh, constantly retracting their you know their statements and and really the the thing with science should be uh, asking questions about reality and you should be ones who are constantly asking questions and testing the uh, these questions through you know the uh, empirical verification things like that but you've, you've got to hold it loosely because we see things that get debunked over time and uh so yeah, there is a level of relativism with that. What else? This is a little more specific but I was
7: just going to say one... Oh, oops. <laughs> one example of um, the whole just moral relativism in society that's going on right now is the very <clears throat> fast uproar of the homosexual community and the approval of that in society as a whole and that's been in like the last few years. Like now it's I feel like a majority of people that I would say seem like Christians or would say they were are in support of that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, we're not supposed to hate people like that. But if you support it, that's it's not. You can't. Just, you don't just have to do one or the other. It's wrong. You know. Yeah. There's a rapid shift in our yeah, culture. Yeah, and just society as a whole. And so now, even people that you know, would say they're in the church or whatever, are following what society believes. And then one thing that comes to mind is um, Hillary Clinton, who used to be totally opposed to that because that's what society, the majority of society, a.k.a. voters, um, are in favor of. And now, whoa, that's shifted. Like, the majority of society, as it seems, at least, is in favor of this. And now she, and I'm sure lots of other... uh, Yeah, politics lives in this world. Yeah. Definitely. So it's just like, well, it used to be considered wrong, and now everyone praises it. Well, how did that change? You know, it, it objective things don't change, but.
0: Yeah, one of the interesting things is a lot of these ideas gain um, traction and momentum in the universities. And so you have professors that are doing research. They have research grants. And they're, they're, they're really diving into these areas. And then eventually it gets to us through what? once again, music and culture and movies and things like that. So uh, I think Aaron had a question, and then I've got one little closing statement, and then we're done. Eight o'clock.
11: Nice. Uh, I think it's just going to be important into the future, Um, just knowing that having the Christian perspective is going to be more and more seen as almost militant. Um, Because from the relativistic perspective, it's like, you know, it's super appealing. Somebody's telling you that, like, it's totally cool to do what makes you happy or whatever it is. And on the other side, it's like, you know, I mean, kind of like me with, what the, I need to with do. the gay marriage thing. Like, I mean, I think, like, I have people who I know and love, like, who are in my life who, like, are going down that road. You know what I mean? And so it's like, how do you... It, i I think Christians are going to be seen a lot of times from the secular viewpoint as not loving people, and like I think that is going to just increase exponentially as you know time goes on and we become our culture becomes more like relative in general
0: yeah, and so what that means for our ministry is we can't just be people who are trying to win arguments the goal is not to win arguments, it's to glorify Jesus and you glorify Jesus. By breaking down some of these barriers. But doing it in a way that you genuinely love the person. Whether they convert or not. You're loving your neighbor. And I think that you have to keep in the forefront of your mind. And also, there's only two options with this, guys. And I'm going to tell you what our ministry is going to do as far as our option. You can retreat and build your own little Christian subculture. And just check out from all the conversations. And check out and avoid these, uh, you know, these liberal... Uh, newspapers and and avoid these, these terrible movies and things like that and just go into your shell. We can do that. Or we can develop our minds from a biblical worldview and engage the culture. That's what our ministry is going to do. That's what we're all about. So we're not going to retreat and build our own little subculture. We're going to winsomely and lovingly engage the culture with what we believe is the truth, which is that Everything was created for the glory of God and and Jesus Christ is the center of everything and the creator and the sustainer of all things and that true happiness and pleasure and satisfaction comes in Jesus Christ, not in any of these other pursuits, including science, and that all truth is God's truth and there is no contradiction between the world of science and the world of uh, Christianity. Um, so... I want us to develop uh, and and grow an an army of people that are loving God with their whole mind. So that's why we do this. And uh, so thank you guys for coming tonight. Let me pray for us as we leave. And if you want to come and talk about this or ask questions, I'd love to talk to you about that. But Father God, we thank you that um, your word is truth and uh, that we can bank our life on it. And uh, I thank you Lord that you uh, have not left us stranded in this world uh, without any knowledge or revelation of you. Uh, the creation uh, uh, the creation reveals you. Uh, when when our eyes are open, we see we see clearly that that all of creation is pointing to you and I thank you that you've given us that sight and I thank you for your word that also gives us a special revelation of your son Jesus Christ and so I pray for this room that, that this talk tonight would inspire them and motivate them to to start to be more strategic and intentional about the way they think and I pray that you would help them to get out of the mentality that that faith is just a personal private thing that is just between you and them and it shouldn't be brought into every area of their lives I pray that you would convict them of that um, that you're lord of their whole life And I pray that we would be a people that would be able to engage with people who don't know you. Um, I would love to see us become a group of people that uh, could go into any situation in any part of Fort Worth and and have a conversation with someone that respects them, uh, that that appreciates their point of view, but also uh, offers another perspective that we believe is ultimately the truth. Lord, we love you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.